Thanks, Ian. It is, uh, it's good to be here. My only regret in being here is I wish you all were here with us as well. Um, it has been a joy uh, as our church has been going through the process of joining the Great Commission Collective to get to know more and more pastors in the movement, but I would be lying if I didn't say that Ian himself was a big part of that for us. His friendship has meant so much to me. Uh, for, we, the friendship between Ian and Sarah and me and Stace has just been, uh, has been precious, as Ian was saying, been precious to us, and increasingly the friendship between our churches. The elders here, I trust you know this, Ian and your elders are... Um, godly brothers who are wise, and it has been a joy for us and for our elders to bring some of our problems to your elders and to receive some counsel. The Proverbs say that the sweetness of a friend comes from the earnestness of his counsel, and that has been an absolute joy to me personally with Ian and for us as elders with your elders to experience the sweetness of friendship through the earnestness of counsel. We've been instructed and built up and edified. We are so excited to be joining the Great Commission Collective, to be joining together specifically with you guys at Redemption, um, for our churches to have increased fellowship and partnership and Lord willing even church planting together in the future as we dream about what the Lord may be doing in our country moving forward. We're so excited about that. We look forward to that. All of that lies ahead of us, but I don't want to keep talking about Ian and the elders. I trust you know all that. I trust you're encouraged and blessed by that, but one of the reasons I love Ian is because he would not want us talking about him. He'd want us talking about the Word. He wants our noses in the text and our hearts inclined towards God. So we want to get into the Word. We're going to be thinking this morning about Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Just before we get into it, I want to explain why I'm doing two Psalms in one. Uh, I'm going to argue this very briefly. I think the two psalms were originally written to be read together, and I think somewhere along the process as the psalms were compiled, they maybe got separated, put back together. I just want to show you a couple reasons real quick why it makes sense to see it that way. Uh, This one is really simple. This one is easy for me. I like simple arguments, so maybe this will help you too. If you look at the top of Psalm 42, our text, see how there's the lettering that's all in caps? That's an inscription. That's an inspired part of the text. So the bold title is not. That's given by, um, by Bible translators and interpreters later. But the, the, the text that's in all capitals, in our text it says to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. That was, that was originally there. That's inspired text. And then you look at Psalm 44. You see it's there too. Psalm 45, it's there too. 46, 47, 48. Uh, you see all of the Psalms through this section of this book of the Psalms all have an inscription, but Psalm 43 does not. Uh, You'll also notice this as we're reading through the psalm. If you look at verse 5 of our psalm in Psalm 42, you'll notice there is this phrase, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. That is a refrain. It's a a, a chorus that's going to be repeated twice in Psalm 42, in verse 5 as we read, and then in verse 11, and then in Psalm 43 in verse 5, the same chorus is repeated. And so you end up with a really tight structure where you have two stanzas, the beginning of Psalm 42 and the beginning of Psalm 43 with four verses in the refrain, and then in the middle there's a stanza with five verses and a refrain, and in the middle of that center stanza is a really key verse that I'll point out to you as we go. So I think the structure of the psalm 
when you take the two of them together, argues that they are a unity as well. But even if you're not sold on any of that and you, you think I'm crazy, it doesn't really matter. You just get two psalms that are both inspired for the price of one this morning in our time. So I'll, I'll just ask you to follow along as we read through Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 and dive into it together. But as we get set to do that, uh, please pray with me. Father God, we come to the text this morning as people who desire to learn not technicalities and not theological details to simply fill our brain. We come as people who desperately need truth to anchor us in tumultuous times. When the waves are tossing and battering us, we need an anchor. We need a safe haven. We need you. And so we look to the text this morning as a people who know that we need you, but also who know where to find you. You are found in your word. And so we look to the text not to find the text, but to find you. So reveal yourself to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here, I'd ask you, how are you? And I'm sure other people would ask you that as well. If it was a typical Sunday morning at church, you would probably get asked, how are you, in more than one way. Someone would maybe pass you in the lobby and say, hey, how are you? And you would respond, good. And that would be the appropriate response. That's all they really want to hear from you. They're just saying hi. They're asking how you are, but they're saying hi, and they want a simple response. But someone else may stop you in the lobby, and they may look you in the eye, and they may ask you the same question in a different way. How are you? How are you doing? And in that sense, in that question, it would be inappropriate to simply respond, good. That person wants to actually know how you are doing. In preparation for this message, I was talking to some of my friends and just asking them, just checking in, how are you doing? These are some of the responses I got back. Uh, one, one friend of mine who's um, particularly unflappable, he is strong, he's stalwart, he's resolved, he's intellectual, he is unmoved. And this is what he said to me. He said, I find it all very stressful. I had a bad tension headache last night. Lockdown feels so oppressive. I just want things to be normal again. Someone else wrote this, I've been pretty quickly angered lately. Not happy with that. Not sure why. Not sure what the underlying thing is, but something's there. Everything just feels so heavy. Someone else said to me in conversation, I've been feeling tired. Like tired. Not, not tired like I need to sleep. 
like weary, just worn down. Someone else said, I don't know why I'm crying so much. I'm getting enough sleep. Why am I so tired and emotional? If we're honest, the answer to how are you is that we're not okay. Things seem ominous. They feel heavy. And many of us are filled with a sense of foreboding and an abundance of questions. There is anxiety. There is angst because we don't know the answers to so many things. What is going to happen to churches moving forward? How long is it going to be before we can gather again? What about my friends? What about my family who are isolated and alone, who don't have anyone living with them? What about the ones who are cut off and desperately in need of support, relationally, emotionally, personally? What about on a big scale? What is all this going to do to the economy in months and years to come? What about the future of freedoms in our country? Where is all of this headed? Some of us are just trying to get through the day without crying, like we're dealing with all of our own stuff. And then we lift up our head and we open Twitter at the end of the day, which is always a bad idea, or Facebook or whatever it is. And we look and there's all these questions that we're somehow supposed to have answers to on this geopolitical economic scale that we're not experts in anyway. But we feel like somehow there's so many scattered puzzle pieces in the world all around us that we're supposed to somehow be able to put this together to give ourselves peace. And we don't even have the box lid to start. What are we supposed to make of everything going on in the world? And then we come to Psalm 42 and 43. At the beginning of another lockdown for this region, and we hear the gentle but firm reminder of our God, it will be okay. It will be okay for those who hope in God. I want to think about this message this morning through the lens of our longings. As we come to this text, to Psalm 42 and 43, we are intensely aware, even as Pastor Ian and I were just talking before the service, we are intensely aware of what we are lacking, what we have lost, what it is that we're longing for feeling longing. So I want to I want to focus on the text through the lens of our longings this morning and see what it is that we are truly missing. What it is that we so desperately need. And we're going to do that under three headings. The first one is this. We long for God. We long for God when we are taunted by our tears. So look at verse 1 again with me. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There is a simple acknowledgement. And as we saw this in, in verse 5, th this refrain that we're going to come back to that's going to center us, that's going to anchor us, this truth that we're supposed to cling on to is that our hope is supposed to be placed in God. But the experience of the psalmist and the experience of many of us is that the simple acknowledgement of a theological truth that we know that to be true, we can say it with our lips, that doesn't immediately bring the results we're looking for of peace and calm in 
our souls. This psalm is going to be an experience of the psalmist trying to wrestle his soul into submission to the truth. This psalm, as he begins with this picture of panting, is a psalm of lament. Do you know what lament is? Lament is a declaration in prayer that God is good and just and holy and wise. He's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the one who does what is right. And yet, at the same time, the world sucks. It's terrible. Things are broken. There is injustice. There is separation. There is all kinds of sin committed against us, committed by us. Even in our own hearts, things are not the way they are supposed to be. So how could it be that God is all wise and God is all good and God is all powerful and the world is broken? The world does not reflect what we know to be true about God. And so in prayer, we go to Him and we confess both of these things and say, God, you fix it. Because I can't. And that's what this psalm is. It's an acknowledgement of the goodness of God, and yet the world's brokenness, my own personal brokenness, and our need of Him. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You ever go through the woods, if you're like me, sometimes you like to go for a hike, and you are hiking through the woods, you're going through a forest on a trail, whatever, and you find those, those paths, those little, those little tiny trails, they look too skinny for a human. They're trails that deer take to go down to the water. They are well-worn paths because deer know how to find the water. They know where it is. This deer has been to this place before. In this picture, he has been there before. He has drunk of flowing streams, but now as he comes, he finds that for whatever reason, maybe it's a seasonal stream, maybe it's a year of drought, he comes to a dry stream bed, and his only option is to wander away or to lick dirt. There is not water now to satisfy him where there once was water. He says in verse 2, My, t- my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? He knows what he longs for. For flowing streams, not stagnant water, not a still body of water. It's it's not a, a simple body of theological truth, not an abstract thing that he longs for. It's for flowing streams, for the living God. It's for relationship, for communion, not the simple acknowledgement of what's true, but the experience of the one who is true. He wants to know his God, to drink deeply of him. I'm thirsty for God, he says, but instead of being able to drink deeply of God, what does he have instead? Look at verse 3. My tears, instead of flowing streams, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? The presence of his tears taunts him as a reminder of the absence of God. 
In, in scriptures, God is the God of all comfort, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. At the end of all things, when God makes all things new, in Revelation 21, it is his own hand that wipes away every tear from our eye, every tear from our cheek. But right now, every time we feel that hot strip of water run down our cheeks, it is a painful and taunting reminder that God is not here to wipe that tear away. Where is he? Our tears taunt us. They mock us. Where is your God? This one who's supposed to come for you. This one who's supposed to be wise. This one who's supposed to be good. This one who is supposed to be powerful is not here to help you, is he? And one of the worst things about it is it doesn't have to be this way. It hasn't always been like this. The psalmist remembers better times. Look at verse 4. These things I remember. I remember better times. As I poured out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. You ever uh, see any videos recently from before the pandemic? It's, it's a jarring experience. Some friends, uh, I had a friend text me this week. They were watching Star Wars with their family and it, it, their, their son uh, asked him in the middle of the movie, how come the people in Star Wars don't have to wear masks? Uh, it's just we get, we, get so, we get so used to the bizarreness of our world. It's like you see people in groups in movies and you're like, whoa, that feels weird. Look, they're touching each other. They've gathered together in the same room. Like this is, this is really weird. The psalmist also is remembering when people were able, when he specifically was able to gather with other people, though he is not now. He's longing for the experience of being in a crowded church building. Everyone's singing their hearts out. And it feels like the heavens are about to open and God is going to come down. We've had that experience. We know what that's like and we're missing it. The thing about the, the people of God here is that it's bound up with what he's really looking for, which is the presence of God. See, see, the presence of God, even all the way back in Eden, God would walk with Adam and Eve together in the cool of the day. When the people in the wilderness, in, in their 40-year journey, built the tabernacle, the, the tabernacle was the tent that was pitched in the middle of all the other tents. God dwelt in the middle of his people. When the temple was built, it was built in the center of the capital city of the people of Israel, so that it was in the center. God dwells in the midst of his people. The thing about the people of God in Scripture is this is where the presence of God is made known. When the psalmist here is lacking or lamenting the lack of the people of God, it's because he knows it's when you're with the people of God that you know the presence of God. And so in as much as he is not able to be with God's people, he is missing his God. He remembers processions and songs and dancing and joy and pouring out his soul but now his soul is clogged, it's heavy, it's sad, and his tears taunt him. Can you relate to his experience? I just, I, I think it's worth pausing in moments like this when you come to a text like this and meditating on the kindness of our God. Who in his mercy, thousands of years ago, inspired this text to a person on the 
in another part of the world with a totally different cultural background, a totally different life experience, and yet he inspired these words written for us to remind you that in your moments of suffering, you are not alone. In your longing, in your lacking, in your loss, you are not alone. This is an experience that has been common to humanity for all time since the fall. And God in his mercy has written down these words for us so that we can read them and say, yes, our God in his mercy has given words to souls that don't know what to say. He's given us psalms of lament like Psalm 42 that honestly reflect our experience So the psalmist going through what we're going through does what we need to do. What does he do? He preaches truth to himself. Like we said, he's trying to wrestle his soul into submission to the truth. Why? Why are you cast down? Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This isn't the end. I will praise him again. I've praised him once. I'll praise him again. He saved me once. He won't abandon me now. He doesn't change. Put your hope in him. He is my salvation and my God. Does it work? He preaches truth to himself. Does it work? Well, look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. Sometimes the truth doesn't immediately help. So what do we do? We keep going. We keep pressing on and pressing into the truth. And we see in this psalm, as the psalmist does that, not only are we longing for God when our tears taunt us, we long for God secondly when we are overwhelmed by the world. When we are overwhelmed by the world, we are still longing for God. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. These are places that are far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, far away from the presence of God. He is reflecting physically what he is feeling emotionally and spiritually in distance from God. He says in verse 7, deep. Calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You ever feel the power of the ocean? It's strong, right? I mean, it can be fun. You see people playing in it. It can be funny. I have have a friend who uh, ran into the ocean unwittingly, uh, and the waves hit him, and the power of the water went off with his shorts. And so his shorts got sucked out into the sea right there in, in front of all of his friends. The power of the ocean can be overwhelming. can be funny until it actually catches you and pulls you out or pulls you under. You ever feel the pressure of a waterfall falling on your head? Again, it it can be fun at first if you have a solid footing underneath you, but if it starts to push you under the relentless push of the waterfalls, pushing you down, pushing you under to a place where you cannot breathe. 
These are waves and breakers. They are relentless, rolling one over another, after another, after another, totally overwhelming, crushing, swallowing up and taking me out to sea. And there's, there's a cruel irony here in the imagery of the psalm. Do you remember what he said he was looking for? He was looking for flowing streams, for gentle flowing streams where he could drink. And instead he's got tears that are bitter and waves that are sucking him out to drown him. A waterfall that's pouring down on his head. But in the imagery of the poem, as I said, or the structure of the poem, we come to now the center verse of the center stanza. And I love the way this works in in the whole flow of the psalm. You come to verse 8. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It's as if He's being pressed under the water, and that feeling of desperation of I need to get up for air. And now finally he, He gets up, and His head comes above the surface, and He's able to gasp out, and He gasps out this prayer. He remembers the covenantal name of His God, Yahweh. I remember you. You you are the God who saves. You're the God who promised to be with me and to never leave me. You have commanded your steadfast love, your chesed, your loyal love, your faithful love, your covenantal love that won't ab- abandon me. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life, the God who has saved me. He remembers his God. He cries out. Do, do you know that experience when you're ba- it feels like you're battling for your sanity? I hope it's not just me. And you're struggling with everything to just cling to Christ. And in the dark night of the soul, as you are wrestling, there are moments of clarity where the light shines through like a beam and you see it and you know it. And it's like all the weight is lifted and the light shines and it is glorious. And the psalmist experiences this. But then immediately, like a man struggling while he's drowning, he's back under. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There are gasps of air as we come to the surface. And then in the turmoil, in the tension, in the pressure, the constant battering of the waves of life, we're back under. He reflects on the oppression of the enemy in verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me continually, where is your God? Who are your enemies? Who are the adversaries that the psalmist is speaking of here who are taunting him? Well, who taunts you? Who erodes your faith and your hope in God? Anyone or anything that is acting on you to erode your hope, your trust in God, His goodness, His presence, His salvation, that is your enemy, your adversary, the adversary of your soul. Maybe it's just the world. 
with all of the pressures of all the things that you're supposed to be and all the answers that you're supposed to provide and all the ways that you're supposed to succeed and get ahead, all the ways you're supposed to make all the right decisions about all the things, and it just adds up to this weight that just weighs on your shoulders and weighs you down. Maybe it's Satan himself or his demons that are coming and whispering their accusations, their temptations, their their words of distrust in your ears. God can't love you. Look around you with the other people in your church. He loves them. He can save them. He can't save you. Look at you. You're a hypocrite. You're too far gone. You're lost. Give it up. It's over. Maybe it's people who mock you. Maybe it's your own doubts, fears, insecurities, questions about what's really true, anxieties that simply will not shut up and leave you alone. Maybe in this season, all of these voices for you are combining into one jumbled, nasty version of a choir. There's all the voices and they're all speaking and you don't even know which one is which. You, you don't even know which voice is coming from inside of you and which voice is coming from outside of you. What's the world and what's me? What's demonic attack and what's my own doubts? I don't even know anymore. And even trying to sort that out feels burdensome. All of it feels so overwhelming. It's not a spray. This isn't a child with a water gun shooting you in the face. This is the waves, the breaker after breaker after breaker. This is the waterfall relentlessly pouring down and will not let up. And we wonder if we'll make it. If God is good, God is powerful. And if He wants me, and if He's actually going to save me like He said He would, where is He when the world feels so overwhelming? So the psalmist again preaches truth to his heart. Verse 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. Does the truth work this time? Spoiler alert, there's more of the psalm to come. I just want to pause and reflect here for a moment on our theology of worship And why refrains are so precious and helpful for us as we sing praises to our God. (laughs) When, When God waters the earth, he doesn't dump the water all at once like a big sheet of water, like a bucket being poured out, but slowly over time sends gentle rains so that the earth can receive it. He he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows that a simple dumping of truth will not necessarily affect our heart. But the gentle, slow application of truth. It is way too easy to sing a song, to sing a line that is packed with truth and move on to have sung it without singing it, to to know it without knowing it, to, to hear it without understanding it. 
to let our mouth be disconnected from our hearts and refrains help us, help our hearts to catch up with the truth that our mouth and our eyes are processing. So having sung this refrain twice already, the psalmist continues, we, we long for God when we're taunted by our tears and when we are overwhelmed by the world. We long for God, but thirdly this, we will continue to long for God. We will always long for God until He satisfies us with Himself. He is what we are longing for. So chapter 43 and verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You know what he's doing here? He's saying, I'm banking everything on you. And if you don't save, I'm done. So, so this week, we have, in, in December, we have um, lots of things to celebrate. Obviously, Christmas comes at the end of the month. My wife's birthday is a little earlier in the month, and it's very important, I've learned, that you change decor uh, from the birthday decor to the Christmas decor. And so I was reminded of how important this was, and I was supposed to take down the banners that we hang for birthdays. And, and so I wanted to do it, but where the banners were hung in our house was over top of the Christmas tree, and so I'm not quite tall enough to get up there and get the... So we've got these pins that are holding the banners in. I'm not quite tall enough, so I reached for the closest thing I could find to hold me up to give me that boost, which was my little daughter's little pink stool. It's this little tiny plastic stool. And I'm like, okay, this'll do, because I'm lazy to go get anything else. And so I go to stand on this thing right over top of our Christmas tree. I'm leaning over top, and all of a sudden it hits me. If this little plastic stool gives out, I've got like sharp pins and a Christmas tree, all the presents underneath me. This is going to go really badly. If the stool gives out, I come down. The psalmist says, God, you're my refuge. You're my protection. You're my salvation. All of my money is in this bank. All of my hope is bound up with you. If you don't save, I'm done. The whole thing comes crashing down. So since God alone can save, He looks to God to save. Verse 3, send out your light and your truth. This is how God's going to save. He's going to save by sending out His light and His truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So if God hears the prayer, if God answers, if God acts, what will it look like? It will look like God sending forth light and truth to bring us to Himself. And what will the resulting action be? As I go to the presence of God, it will be praise and worship. It will be honor. It will be assembly with God's people. These are all the things that he was remembering at the beginning of Psalm 42 that he did not have. But notice this. Praise and worship and assembly are not what he needed. They're the result of what he needed. His tears, his lament, his prayers, they were all desperate cries for something
for joy. And he knows where joy is found. He's not crying for joy, crying out for joy, longing for joy in changed circumstances. Look at chapter 43 and verse 4, and notice what he does not say. He does not say, God will send out his light and his truth, and that will give me victory. He does not say, that will change my circumstances and then I'll have joy. It does not even say, that will bring me to God who gives me joy. He says, if you send forth your light and your truth and you bring me to your altar and to your dwelling, that will bring me to God who is himself my exceeding joy. See, joy that exceeds the circumstances that overwhelm me is found not through God, but in God. It is God himself. He is not the means to the end of joy. He himself is our joy. He is the end. He is the one we are actually longing for through this whole experience. All the things that we remember, all the things that we lack, all the things that we're missing and longing for find their true fulfillment in him alone. He is our joy. He is our end. And I think this is worth reflecting on for a minute here. Because I think so often when I find myself in a funk like the psalmist, I am dumber than a deer. Because the deer knows what it is that he's longing for. The deer is longing for water, and so it seeks simply for water. I'm going to go find flowing streams. But when my longings are awakened, so often I think I can be satisfied with so many other things. I'm longing for the church to be allowed to gather. I'm longing for us to sing songs of praise. I'm longing for human contact, for friends physically present, for hugs, for physical touch, to do all the things that humans have done throughout history because we're human. I'm longing for these things. I'm longing for normalcy, or so I think, for ease, for governments off our backs, for a world that has COVID eradicated, when no one's sick anymore, no one in danger anymore, no one immunocompromised anymore. We think we're looking for health, for freedom from COVID, for a new year to set everything right, for a better economy, you name it. These are the things we think we're looking for, and all the while we're dumber than a deer. Because all along it's God. It's Him. He is the one we are longing for. Maybe, maybe part of the reason why God is letting us collectively suck on our tears for a little while is because He wants us to wake up again to the reality that it's actually Him we're thirsting for. Maybe part of the reason why He wants us to be crushed and tossed by the waves for this season 
is so that we'll remember our desperate need of the flowing streams that is our God. Augustine said this over 1,500 years ago. In a prayer to God, he reflected this. He said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. When we forget where our rest is found, our hearts grow increasingly restless. We try to make circumstances or songs or fellowship or friendship or freedom or ease the thing that will will make everything right again. But it's not that. It's God. He is the stream that we are longing to drink from. Everything else will leave us bitter or gasping for air. So how do we find him? The psalmist already told us, send forth your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to you. What is the light and the truth that will save us? Listen, what is God's truth? Jesus said these words. But a thousand years later, after the psalm was written, in John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, he said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way to come to God, the way to come to God is the truth, is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one who proves all that God has ever said is right, is faithful, is trustworthy. Jesus faithfully reveals all that is true of our God. He is the one who alone can bring us to God. That's his truth, but what about the light? What's the light that the psalmist was longing for God to send? Well, I would suggest to you that there's a riddle of sorts. Actually, I think there's several riddles, but there's at least one in Genesis chapter 1. When God created the heavens and the earth, and there was darkness until God said, let there be light. But the sun is not created until the fourth day. There's no sun or moon or stars. So how is there light but no sun and moon and stars? Well, we don't get the answer in one sense until the last page of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. In the new creation, when God is making all things new, we read about this in the new creation. The answer to that question, what is this light that's different than any light we've ever known? Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The shining forth, the beauty, the radiance of all that is wonderful, all the splendor of our God is found in this lamp that is the lamb which is Jesus Christ it shines forth from his very face this is at the heart of the gospel Paul says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 he says if our gospel is veiled it is veiled only to those who are perishing 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ as Yahweh, Jesus Christ as God. All the shining for it, the beauty, all that we long for in our God is found. It shines in Jesus, in his face. So Paul goes on in verse Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has sent his light and truth to bring us to himself in the person of his Son, The psalmist's prayer for deliverance, for the light and the truth of God to come was answered. That's why we just celebrated Christmas. If we want to come to God and be satisfied in Him and have exceeding joy in Him, it is found in Christ. So if it feels to you right now Like God is against your joy. Like you've got all these longings, all these impulses, all these things that you're missing and you're not able to find them satisfied and it feels like God is against your joy. You need to hear this. He is so for your joy that He sent His Son as light and truth into this world to bring you to Him. You were licking the dirt of this world. You were swimming against the tide that was sucking you out to sea. It was going to crush you and kill you, but He sent His Son to come and draw you in. You forsook God as Creator. He gave you identity and purpose when He created you, but you sought your own identity. You wanted to define your own purpose in rebellion against your Creator. You forsook your king who had given you laws of right and wrong, what is good and true, but you want to determine good and evil for yourself, so you rebelled against your king. You forsook him as your joy, and you sought joy in the created things rather than the creator. This was your state. You failed, and you were drowning in a sea of opposition. You were drinking from a stream of your tears, but Jesus was sent as light and truth to die in your place so that that he could bring you to God if you turn from your rebellion and trust in him he will become your exceeding joy for the Christian this is good news this means that the God who is your salvation my God and my salvation he who has saved you will not leave you. He will not abandon you now. C.S. Lewis said this. I, I found this to ring true in my own life. He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for something different than this if this doesn't satisfy. So follow the logic, the train of 
reasoning here that we've been on. If God has given us desires that are too great for this world to satisfy, but we have tried to satisfy them with this world, then the most merciful thing in all the world is for God to withdraw all the world from us so that we would turn to Him who is our exceeding joy. In withdrawing the pleasures of the world and making us aware of our longings, He is mercifully calling us to himself. So if you are sensing your joy frustrated, your hope frustrated, then Christian, rejoice. If your longing is leaving you aching this lockdown, rejoice. This means God loves you too much to leave you trying to satisfy yourself with a world that will not satisfy. He's calling you to him. This is the furthest thing from meaning He's done with you or against you. It means He is for you. And your God will save you and satisfy you. I don't know what's going to happen in our circumstances. I don't know what's going to happen with lockdown. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know what it's going to mean for churches or family or friends. I, I can't predict any of that. It is scary and it is sad and it is overwhelming. And if you ask me this morning how I'm doing, I would probably answer much like my friends at the beginning. It still feels overwhelming. But I believe this. All our longings this lockdown are a merciful gift from a merciful God who's calling us to Himself to satisfy our deepest longings. The God who is for us in Christ will not abandon us now. So we say again to ourselves this morning, wrestling our souls into submission, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, our deepest longing is not for the end of a lockdown. It's not to celebrate Christmas or New Year's with family and friends as much as we would love those things. It's not even to be gathered together, together again as a church family. Though we long for all those things that are good, our deepest longing is most simply you. You are our exceeding joy. Father, thank you for the longings. Thank you for the loss. Thank you for the aching that testifies to the reality that we were created for more than this world can deliver. Father, we pray that you would, in your kindness, wrestle our souls into submission to the truth this morning. That we would seek you and be satisfied in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name.